John chapter 1. Now, I read 34 verses, and don't worry, we're not covering 34 verses. Um, but it was good to get all that in there. And I, I, I want to recommend to you going back and reading John 1 this week, this morning. Um, so much wrapped up in John chapter 1, which we're going to look at here in a minute. Uh, I don't know about you guys, but always the last couple weeks before Christmas, especially the, this, the, the very last week before Christmas, it's as if it's just like the Christmas extravaganza is exploding in your face all around. Everywhere you go, right, you, it, it's, it's just there. Lights are out. The stores are crazy packed. The kids are uh, you know, you, you might, I don't, some of you don't, but you're cranking up the, the Christmas carols in the car or at home. You're baking, you're wrapping, you're planning. Um, and to a lot of us, Christians and non-Christians, uh, all that comes pretty easy for us. To just kind of get into that flow about December whatever, especially those last two weeks. Um, it's almost like this jet stream we just kind of fall into and it takes us and it's fun it's refreshing until you check your bank account usually uh, but it's it even there's even joy in it but every now and then as we're caught up in that stream uh, we're, we're going non-stop we get sort of a gut check and somebody we don't want to admit it but kind of takes all the fun out of it your uh your radio station cuts to commercial after nat king cole or the tv comes on the tv commercial comes on during your ritual watching of it's a wonderful life and you you get this reminder that interrupts this christmas spirit flow to just give you this reminder of the very important thing. And it always comes to us in the same way. And then it comes in seven simple words. And these words always, at least for me, bring some conviction and seriousness to, you know, the things that are going on around us. And really, these seven words deflate the we'll just call it commercial Christmas spirit in us as fast as the batteries go out on our new toys at home. Um, y'all know what those seven words are? Well, that's a good one. That's a good guess. Jesus is the reason for the season. I might be the only one. Um, but, you know, you hear that on the radio or it comes across the TV and you've got that well-intentioned person. And you're, you're like, okay, I'm this responsible, God-fearing adult. Uh, kids, kids, I put away your – like, I know you've got your presence. We're full as ticks. We've got all this around us. But just remember all this stuff that we've done. This isn't the reason why we're doing this. Right. We, and us, you hear us adults say that when we get that conviction from that ad that comes across the radio. 
We have to remember, kids, that Jesus is the reason for the season. Christmas is about joy, hope, peace, love. And we're telling them this, and we're like, but I want to turn off the Chipmunks Christmas album and let's sing Silent Night. You know, it's kind of the way it goes. And as true as that statement is, Jesus is the reason for the season, I began to think about it this past week, and something wasn't sitting right with me. Um, Especially when we consider the ratio of Jesus is the reason for the season and then compared to uh, all the things that we're doing, buying, spending money on, time and energy, that ratio tends to be a little imbalanced. And if money talks, and it does, we look at what we spend in the holiday season and the Christmas season, uh, it's, it, it says a lot about what our true reason for the season is in, in, within us. And, it, it, and it, it's temporary satisfaction. It's temporary. We want to be satisfied. Uh, we want to be filled with something. And we cannot forget that Jesus is the reason for the season. Now don't get me wrong. All the things that we can do in Christmas can be done in the right way. Uh, However, when I think about it and I've thought about it this week, the Christmas season is a good measure of how people view Christ. If you take a step back and you wanted to get a barometer of the, the, the pressure of Christianity in America, just wait to Christmas and you see that Jesus typically is just an add-on, a tag, right? And that's why we hang on to that Jesus is the reason for the season. Uh At the end of a Christmas day, filled with food and drink, toys all across the house, parents weary from all the gatherings and wrappings and eating, we want to make sure that we take a moment to remind ourselves by looking at the nativity scene. That if we keep an an eye, one eye on Jesus while we're doing all this stuff, it's like it makes it right and serious. Again, I, I... I'm not saying you don't celebrate. What I just want us to understand is that we can't dress up Christmas by just tagging on Jesus and making it right. That'd be like saying I'm going to go to a job interview in my sweatsuit, but I'm going to wear a necktie. It just doesn't work. Or I'm going to serve spam on my good china. Now, I love spam, but you get the point. Jesus has become, not just for Christmas, but in Christianity, just an add-on. We've removed Christ from Christianity. And this really drove me, and that's not where I want to stay or get at, but I wanted to drive us to this point. And what drove me there to this point I want us to look at this, to make this morning, was a quote that I came across from Charles Spurgeon, ironically, while I was shopping online for Christmas presents. And the, and the quote goes like this. If Christ be anything, he must 
be everything. If Christ is anything, He must be everything. Now, that was quite a truth bomb for me this week. Sort of like Luke says in Acts 2, when they heard it, they were cut to the heart. Well, that one went straight to my heart this week. Forget Jesus is the reason for the season, right? If Christ be anything, He must be everything. Let's let's change it to Jesus is the reason for everything. He is the reason for everything always. If we fly that banner over our hearts, if we if we live our lives dictated by that truth, perhaps next Christmas we'd be less likely to get swallowed up in the commercial Christmas mire if we keep in mind that Jesus is the reason for everything always. Is that not the message of the Bible? Is that not what God is declaring to us? Do not the scriptures say over and over again from many different perspectives that Christ is all? One of my most favorite verses when it comes to communicating this, and you've heard me quote it many times, and it goes like this from Paul to the Colossians. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. He is everything, is he not? He's everything. But perhaps no passage is more clear than John 1. Uh, and even seems to be more fitting now, since we're focusing on the birth of Christ this Christmas morning, the Son of God coming into the world He created. So, I I had I started this I started this with three major things we find about Jesus in John one, and these three things can become like the statement Jesus is the reason for the season cliche to us. Hollow, normal. Um, I, I'm not going to go through all three of them today. I'm really going to focus on the first one. But here, here are those three things that you find in John one and, and all throughout Scripture that we must we must break through the cliche. Jesus is the reason for everything because Jesus is number one God. Number two, our salvation. And number three, full of glory, grace, and truth. Now this morning, I just, I really want to just simply quickly focus on that first one and touch on the second one. And I want to leave the third one for you to go home and consider. Jesus is God. Jesus is our salvation. Jesus is full of glory, grace, and truth. Let me pray before we tackle these this morning. Father, as the fires burn hot over the gold, under the gold to remove the dross and to bring out the purity, and so we, we cry out that your word by your spirit this morning will burn hot and remove all that does not need to dwell within us, in our hearts, in our minds, in our words, in our thoughts, in our actions. 
And that we might see Christ as most lovely. As God. As our only hope in life and death. Spirit of God, we ask that you would show us the glory of Jesus this morning. For it's his sake we pray these things. Amen. So, Jesus is the reason for everything because Jesus is God. Now, how that rolls off the tongue, right? It feels so natural for us to say that, to teach it, to proclaim it, because that's what we know. That's what we've been told. That's what we've read. But let's dwell on it for a minute. Let's dwell on the truth. Let's smash the cliche that it's wrapped around. Three words when we think about Jesus being God that we'll find, not these words themselves in John 1, but these ideas, these three words, these three realities of who Jesus is as God ought to shake us to our core when we think about the divinity of who Jesus is. His Godness, eternality, he's eternal, his perfection and his power. Eternal, perfect, and powerful. What these three tremendous realities about Jesus, uh, why why do they feel so cliche to us? Why are they like, oh yeah, eternal, perfect, uh, powerful? Why do we get to that point? Well, there's a very good possibility. It's because instead of viewing Jesus in those ways, we probably more subconsciously view ourselves in those three ways. We look at ourselves as eternal beings, as um, perfect and powerful. Now you might be saying, "I've never said that about myself." You haven't. I probably, probably, I, I agree with you there, but you've lived that way. You've lived that way of thinking that you were never going to die, that you could never make a mistake, or that you had all the power in the world to make your own will be accomplished. When it comes to eternality, we live as if we will not die, blind that the end will come, perhaps thinking that we're invincible, unshakable, and nothing can take us down. Well, Isaiah already told us we were wrong about that this morning. Peter picks that up in 1 Peter 1 when he says all flesh is like grass and its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God remains forever. Now it's easy for us to feel the fading, but yet we want to sometimes deny it. And we feel the fading, but yet we don't look to the last part portion of that truth. That while we fade, the word of the Lord remains forever. Or the way James puts it, you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. We must remember that we are not going to live forever. That we will return back to the dust. And while we will return back to the dust, our souls will remain and stand before God.
Now, perfection, sometimes we just act as if we can do no wrong. No one's ever going to say, I'm perfect. We're not that silly. But there are times we suppress the truth of our sin. We deny the reality of the evil that remains in our flesh. And if confronted by it, whew, if someone comes and tells us about it, we kind of sound like Peter start cursing them, claiming they're wrong, and reject the truth of God that we are sinners in need of a Savior. Now again, you've never said it, but we, myself, we tend to sometimes act like it. And then powerful. Ugh. How weak are we? How frail. Yet we walk around in pride with our chest pumped out, thinking that we have the, the power to control the things around us, power to deliver what we need or what we think we need, power to deliver to ourselves what we deserve, power to protect our families, to keep our own jobs, to face the world, forgetting our frailty and that we are weak, needy, Creatures dependent on the Creator for all things. As we're told in Acts, God gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. In Him, we live and move and have our being. Eternal, perfect, and powerful we are not. But it is ever so clear that Jesus is. And these first three verses lay, lay this out fairly well for us. Look at verse 1, 2, and 3 in John 1. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. There he was in the beginning. Not created, but everlasting, having no beginning, having no end. The Son was, is, and is to come. Paul tells Timothy that God alone can claim immortality, God alone is the immortal one. And the scriptures are ever so clear that the Word, the Son, is God. For He was God, was with God in the beginning. He was with God. There's no denying the eternality of our Lord Jesus. The perfection, being God... Jesus, the Son of God, is perfect in all things and always. Now, one thing we don't we don't remember, or we just it, it just seems to slip our minds, that in the perfection of Jesus isn't just in his behavior, but in who he is in relation to his communion with God the Father. Perfect. Perfect communion, fellowship, and love. In the Godhead. 
You know, we get so, again, self-focused and we say God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that we could love him. He wants us to love him. He does not need our love. He has perfect love, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, perfect communion, fellowship, and love. But yet he sent his son to share that love. He loved us first. The perfect communion and love of the Son with the Father and the Spirit. The the perfection can also be seen in what John calls light. Look at verses 4 through 8. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The the scriptures use light synonymous with perfection, righteousness, spotlessness. Remember what John also writes in his epistle? What's he say? That God is light and in him is no darkness at all. John also says, I got to see it. I got a glimpse of that perfection. I got a glimpse, John says, of that light. Look at verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And what? We have seen his glory Glory as the only Son from the Father. On the Mount of Transfiguration, the light of the glory of God shone so bright, the the bright white light could never be matched or created. The light, the perfection, is the glory of God shining forth from Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. It was the light that shone forth on Mount Sinai as Moses asked God to show him his glory. It is the glory that was shown when the angels declared to the shepherds, Glory to God in the highest, peace on earth. This is the perfection of God. Because in him... The Father, the Son, and the Spirit is no darkness at all. His gloriousness. And so when you think tonight and you're driving home somewhere and you see Christmas lights, let your mind go to the perfection of Jesus. Not the construction of the lights on the house, but see the lights on the house and think about the glory and perfection of the light of Christ. And power, power, it's very evident in these few verses. Verse 3, what's he say? For nothing was made, and without him was not anything made that was made. All things were made through him. Colossians says it a little different, but saying the same thing. For by him that would be Jesus, the Word, the Son, All things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. And so, when you watch your kids play today, or you get pictures of your grandkids and great-grandkids holding up toys, think about the power of Jesus Christ in creating them. 
and giving them and forming them in their mother's womb. And then doing so, giving praise and worship to him. And then, as you look at them, surrendering them back to him. Because his power was powerful enough to create them, and it's powerful enough to keep them. We can actually see the power of Jesus and the light of Jesus. The power of his perfection in verse 5. Look at verse 5. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The power of the perfect one overpowers the strength of any evil, of anything this world has to give, of the flesh and of the devil. The power of the perfect one overpowers it all. Darkness stands no chance in that light. I think Hebrews 2 does it so well and it describes the power when it says this therefore the children share in flesh and blood he himself partook of the same things born this happy morn that through death he might destroy there's the power there's the power of Jesus destroying the one who has power of death That is the devil. I'm going to read that again. Christ came in his power as a man that he might destroy Satan. This doesn't make Jesus the reason for the season. It makes Jesus the reason for everything. But perhaps my favorite... No, no. I can't forget this power. This power is also the power that raised him from the dead. This power is the same power that raised you spiritually from the dead. But not only that, one day this same power will physically raise you from the dead. What power? But... uh, I wrote, but one of my favorite aspects of his power is this, but it's kind of like can't pick your favorite but how i love this his power upholds and keeps all things always jesus the son of god hebrew says that jesus in chapter one upholds the universe by the word of his power in the vastness of of time and space our Lord Jesus has kept it all going. Your next breath delivered by the power of Jesus. The next sunrise delivered by the power of Jesus. The stars hanging in the sky by the power of Jesus. And you know what the Bible never says? Uh, it says he laid aside his glory, but it never says that he stopped upholding the universe by the word of his power. It never says that, but gives us actually the contrary, that he continued while on earth to uphold the universe. So which means this, while in the womb of Mary, by his own power, kept his mother's heart beating. While nursing, 
provided his own milk while laying in a manger upheld every star in the sky. What child is this who laid to rest on Mary's lap is sleeping? He's the creator of all things, the keeper of all things. Our Lord Jesus and our God. He is God. But second, Jesus is our salvation. And I just got a couple words on this and a couple verses from him. Jesus is our salvation. See, I've been thinking about that phrase, not that Jesus saves us or Jesus saved me, but he is my salvation. It is him. Now, while the first few verses of John chapter 1 paint this picture of Jesus, eternal, perfect, and powerful, the rest of the picture comes into focus as we see a sort of denial of these three things. Not in a way that he is no longer God when he becomes man, as in verse 14 says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. But no, in this mysterious way, this one who is eternal put on flesh to die. This one who is perfect became sin who knew no sin. And this one who is powerful set all of his power aside to be hung on a cross. But yet remained God. I don't know how that is to be, but it is truly God and truly man. The Word became flesh. He covered His glory. He put Himself in the midst of sin as He dwelt among us. And He made Himself as the offering to God for the sake of the sin of the world. Verse 29, Behold the Lamb of God. In scriptures, there's only one outcome for a lamb, and that is sacrifice. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. What, what a show of power and strength to lay it aside for the sake of those who are undeserving. And that's why John can say he is full of grace. In verse 14. But uh, I think Charles Wesley preaches it better than I do. And hark the herald angels sing when he says, when he writes this in his hymn. Hear these words. Hear them like you've never heard them before. Christ by highest heaven adored. Christ the everlasting Lord. Late in time behold him come. Offspring of the virgin's womb. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. Pleased as man with men to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. Light and life to all he brings, risen with healing in his wings. 
Mild he lays his glory by, born that man no more may die, born to raise the son of earth, born to give them second birth. If Christ be anything, he must be everything. Everything. He is the reason. Jesus is the reason for everything and always. To conclude, and I, I just got a couple minutes here. I want to finish Spurgeon's quote. Because at the end of his quote, he gives us the now what? The truth has been laid before us. That Jesus is everything. He is God. He is our salvation. He is full of grace and glory and truth. So how are we to respond to that? He says, if Christ be anything, he must be everything. Now, O rest people, not till love and faith and Jesus be the master passions of your soul. Let me say that again. Do not rest until love and faith in Jesus be the master passions of your soul. Do not settle for the cliche, is what he's saying. Do not be satisfied with Christ as a window dressing, as an add-on, as icing on the cake. No, you know what Jesus says he is? He says, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the true vine. Therefore, do not be, do not be content with him to just be acquaintances. To be acquaintance with Jesus is to be cut from the vine. No, seek him. Seek to love him as a bride loves her groom. Depend and trust on Him as a toddler does to a father. Strive to know Him today. Strive to be found in Him. Not having a righteousness of your own that comes from being a good person. Or occasionally remember that Jesus is the reason for the season. But in faith and love for Christ, seek to know Him. And the power of His resurrection. Seek to suffer like Him. Seek to become like Him in His death. That He might be the greatest passion and desire and treasure of your soul. Because if not, what are we doing today? What are we doing? Let's pray. Take some time this morning to pray. Respond to the Lord where you are. Come to Him as God. Come to Christ as your salvation. Repent of your sins.
confess your unbelief. Beg of Him that you might grow hot and full of zeal for your Lord Jesus and His gospel and His kingdom. Conclude our prayer with Mary's song of praise as a prayer for us this morning. O oh God, our souls magnify the Lord, and our spirit rejoices in God our Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servants. For behold, from now on all generations will call us blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for us, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. May our Lord Jesus have all rule and authority and power and dominion and take throne and take dominion over our hearts. For his sake we pray these things. Amen.